Amen. Our scripture reading tonight is from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You would pray with me, God and Father, as we come now to read in your word of this remarkable event. I pray that you would be with us, speaking to us through it, that you would meet with us here, that you would be with us sinners as we sit under it, that we might be attentive to what it says, and be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord who has come. Amen. So this is a continuation, although I know some of you are visiting here with us this evening of, this, of a series that we've been working our way through this Advent season, where we've looked in many ways, what in many ways are the familiar kind of narratives and stories that surround Jesus' birth and reflect on the reality that these are not just sort of fables or folk stories, but that these, um, these are recording things that happen and often kind of unexpected things. And I was thinking about that and thinking about this story, right, which is perhaps the most um, familiar part of the Christmas story. I was thinking about, have you ever, like, had the chance to see, like, a big concert? And I don't mean, like, you know, like your kids, like my daughter's, you know, school concert. I mean, like, you know, auditorium, flame jet shooting up in the air, rock and roll kind of concert, right? Have you ever had a chance to go to that kind of concert and then meet the musicians afterwards? You know what I mean? In like a greeting line or because you know somebody who gets you backstage to meet the musicians. I've done that before. And, um, and on the one hand, when you do that, it can be kind of awesome, right? You're kind of starstruck. You're like, oh, wow, I'm meeting this, this god of rock and roll. But at the same time, in the moment that you actually meet them, it's almost anticlimactic. I mean, they're all sweaty and tired looking in the first place, right? Because they just played this concert. And they don't look nearly as tall as they did up on stage. I mean, sometimes they're even shorter than you are. And you're like, what? And, um, and you can see the makeup that they're wearing and the lines on their face and the dark circles under their eyes from life out on tour. The person in front of you does not match that like towering legend of rock that you were envisioning when you went to meet them. That's kind of how the text we read this evening feels to me. I mean, this is it, all right? Jesus is being born, and the angel choirs are about to sing his birth, and there's been prophecies and visitations, and this dude has been struck dumb, and, and, and the wise men even now are traveling with these gifts from foreign parts to bring to him, and here, in the middle of all of that kind of exciting, unusual stuff, is this story that when you actually sit in it, feels rather ordinary. But I think that's actually the point. 
the ordinariness of this story is part of what we're supposed to take away from it. But don't take my word from it up front, all right? Let's work through the story and then reflect a little bit on what it means. It starts, verse 1, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. The story of Jesus' birth starts with a census, with some bean counters in Rome who decided that they needed to know exactly how many people lived in all the provinces, and so they decided to make them all go to their hometowns and register there. And right away, because it's important to notice these things, all right, this is not like a mythological story of some god being born. It's not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the way that movie that I went and saw last week starts. It starts off um, in the reign of Caesar Augustus when he took that census. In fact, Luke says, if you're curious, wait, which census was it? It's the first one when Quirinius was governor of Syria, of course. This is history, right? But within that history, it is eminently ordinary. This is the kind of thing that happened all the time. And then we go on to read in verse 3. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So Joseph was a descendant of King David, And his hometown was Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, like Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph were from, if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, it is not an important city in the ancient world, all right? It's maybe 400 or 500 people. It's really small. Now, it's kind of known. People are aware that it exists because King David is there. But that was a thousand years ago that King David was born there. It's like, it's like that The fact that I could tell you that Pawnee City, Nebraska is the birthplace of Larry the Cable Guy, right? Or Wahoo, Nebraska, right next to where I grew up, was the headquarters of David Letterman, right? I mean, those are things those towns were very proud of, but I guarantee that you haven't been to those places, right? That doesn't really make them important. Anyway, Joseph travels to Bethlehem, to this small town, with his wife Mary, and they're engaged, so I guess she's not yet his wife, sorry, and Mary is pregnant, And that has to be an unpleasant trip. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, right? Because we just kind of romanticize these things. But she's traveling hundreds of miles on the back of a donkey or a camel in her third trimester. Which I know, especially some of you here who are female, are cringing a little bit at the thought of what that kind of trip would be like. They go on this long, unpleasant journey. And then in verse 6, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born which means Mary went into labor. And it is exactly like any of you who have gone into labor. Every other woman's experience of labor. I've witnessed a few of them, right? Well, three of them with my wife. And um, while my wife is this superhero at giving birth to kids, and um, none of them were still like particularly serene, romantic, pretty scenes, right? I mean, that's the same for the birth of Jesus, He was really born as a human being, just like any one of us. God was born like that. I mean, 
I don't, so one of the things that's bugged me forever about nativity scenes, and I've never told anyone this, uh, although I'm about to, so hopefully, but um, <laughs> one of the things that's bugged me for years, or I've thought when I look at nativity scenes, is um, where is the blood? <laughs> because if you actually reflect on the story of what's happening there, the kind of like clean, neat, pretty, tidy stable does not fit a place where a child was just born. And we'll come back to that too. But in verse 7, she gives birth, it says then, to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So Mary gives birth to the baby Jesus. And I love how it's recorded. While Jesus' birth is surrounded by all these grand pronouncements and angel choirs, in the moment itself, it's not talking that way. It doesn't say that Mary gave birth to God made flesh. It doesn't say she gave birth to the Savior of the world. What it says is simply Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. The focus is on that magic that we all know at birth the tender bond of connection between mother and child. And she lays him in a manger because there's no guest room available in any of the houses in town, which is a sign of poverty and of humble birth, yes. But even that isn't that strange in the world where Mary and Joseph live. This is a day where everyone was farmers and for lots of people even kept animals in their houses with them. Mary and Joseph were not unfamiliar with the presence of these beasts and Jesus would not have been. And all of that together is meant to remind us that this is a deeply ordinary, normal, physical story. While there are angels and prophecies and mysteries and stars and terrible tragedy all around it, the moment where God comes as Jesus Christ, it is summarized exactly the way we could talk about any of the million of other births in our world. It reads no differently than any other birth, right? I could say that the time came for the baby to be born and my wife gave birth to her firstborn, a daughter, using the exact same language. It is striking in how ordinary it is. And that actually tells us something profound. So there's this way of approaching Christianity, all right? And it denies the goodness of the ordinary and the everyday and the physical. And that way of approaching Christianity is all around us. I think some of us probably think that it's Christianity. And it relies on this basic idea that there are supernatural, spiritual things, and those things are good, and that there are natural, physical things, and those things are bad, or at least distractions from the good stuff. Let me give some examples. I have been told, for instance, that I have... That I, have a soul, and that that is really me, that I am the soul, and that my body is just kind of this, like, thing that keeps my soul stuck here in this world until it can get out of it. I've been told that one day I will be a spirit, kind of floating around a spiritual world after I leave the earth behind. I have been told that there are two things that are eternal, God and people's souls, with the implication that any time that I spent on anything that didn't directly relate to one of those two things was passing and a waste of time. And because of all of that, I, and all of us, I think, when we hear those ideas, we can feel guilty for being physical creatures. We can feel guilty, or at least not very Christian, for enjoying the meals and desserts and presents and desserts and naps and desserts that are part of Christmas for us. You've heard those statements, right? Maybe some of us have even said those things, and we were seeking to articulate Christianity, but those ideas are not Christian. 
The Bible does not teach any of those things. They're actually part of another religion called Gnosticism that we won't go into this evening. But Christianity doesn't teach any of that. Now, before you get worried, all right, the Bible does say that there's a spiritual world alongside this physical one. And it does say that we are spiritual as well as physical creatures, and that we have souls as well as bodies, and that God is eternal, and all of that. It does say all of that, but the physical world in Scripture, for instance, is never the problem. It's not the problem, right? The physical world is God's good creation, and in fact, in Scripture, the problem is a spiritual problem. It's sin. There's something spiritually wrong that messes up the world. The physical world isn't temporary either, actually. At the end of the story of Christianity is a new heavens and a new earth. And new not in the sense that we're flying off to some other planet, but new in the sense of renewed. The image Peter uses in 2 Peter is as the earth after the flood. This world washed of its brokenness. That's where we will live for eternity, here. And we will have bodies, I don't know where the idea that we're kind of spirits flitting around in the clouds come from, right? Because scripture's consistent teaching is the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. We confess that every time we say the Apostles' Creed. That yes, when we die, our souls are united with God in this temporary kind of in-between time. And that's a beautiful and a blessed thing. But at the end of the story, it's glorified bodies reunited with souls that we're supposed to have. That's what the Bible teaches, And I know of no story that could make that more clear than the story that we're reading tonight. Jesus came and lived on this world as a human being with a body. We talk about him being incarnate, right? And the best way to understand that word is to say that that means in carne, right? In flesh, in meat. That Jesus has a physical body and lives a physical normal life on this world. And he is sinless and perfect and God. It's worth dwelling on that fact, right? Jesus had a body. I mean, he got cold, and he shivered, and he got goosebumps. I mean, he could rub his fingers together, just like you can, and feel the roughness of your fingertips. I mean, he he would get hungry, and he would have to eat. And not just a body, Jesus also had a normal physical life in this physical world. Well, he did have a public ministry at the end of his life, and a special communion with the Father, He spent 30-odd years of his life, right, playing as a child and milking the goats and learning carpentry from his dad and working and doing all of that stuff. And at the very beginning, before he starts his ministry, right, before he's done any of the healing or preaching or any of that, when he's baptized by, um, by John the Baptist, this dove descends from heaven and the Lord says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That somehow God is fully pleased in Christ even before he's done any of the real spiritual-seeming stuff that we associate with him. The heart of Christianity is about the physical and the normal and the ordinary, just as much as it's about the spiritual and the mystical and the miraculous. And Christmas is meant to be a time that teaches us that. What does that mean for us? Why highlight that ordinariness here tonight on Christmas Eve? Well, let me give you three quick thoughts on why all of that matters, why it's important. First, it just means that our ordinary lives please God. Our ordinary lives please God. I feel like I can, and many of us, can have this kind of low-grade guilt, right? Because we get up in the morning, and 
brush your teeth and take the shower and get dressed and get your breakfast and you get out the door and drive to work and work and come home or you stay home and you juggle the kids and a million other things that you have to do and then you you cook dinner and you eat dinner and you juggle the kids some more and you finally get them to bed and you know maybe somewhere in there you mowed the lawn and then you're picking up everything and by the end of the day you feel like you've had to do all this stuff and none of it is very spiritual and that because of that, somehow we're not very spiritual. That we're failures. But that is actually a picture, in a real sense, of success, not failure. That that's the kind of life that God intends for you to live. Now, yes, there is prayer and gathering together as the saints and reading scripture, and those things are real and there are things we're called to as well, but a lot of why God calls us to those things in Scripture is because they're meant to work on and change and serve all of those ordinary sorts of faithfulness that we are called to. That God loves it when you mow the grass. He loves it. He put, he put Adam and Eve on the earth, right? And he told them to, to subdue and to tend this garden. And I can think of no better picture of subduing and tending than looking out and smelling that lawn that I've just mowed. That God is proud of you for your hard work at your job or in your home. That he delights in the way that you change your kids' diapers and the fact that you brush your teeth and the way you laugh with your friends. That that is how he designed the world to work. And I think that's true of the holidays, too. That God delights, it pleases him, when we celebrate. Maybe not everything delights him. I don't know that he's a fan of the lines at Target. But that God is actually pleased, not just with, you know, with the candlelight service tonight, not just with the kind of time when we read the Advent story with our children, but that he's also pleased with the gift-giving and the lights And the decorations and the eggnog and the big meals and the family in-jokes. God made creation for our joy and his glory. He's glorified when we enjoy it. Which also means that that these ordinary lives we're talking about are a chance to glorify God. They're a chance to glorify God. Everything we just said is true, but it does come with a caveat. Because it's obviously possible to also lead that same ordinary life I just described in a way that's not honoring God, right? You can pursue those things in a way that is selfish or that does distract you from him. But the answer to that challenge is not to undo all the things that we just said. Instead, it's to recognize that God's pleasure in the ordinary means that the ordinary things in our lives are an opportunity for us to give glory to him. The ordinary things in our lives are an opportunity for us to give glory to him. It's like kids opening presents on Christmas morning, all right? So there's this wrong way for kids to open presents, right, that we all know, where the kid, you know, he tears through all the presents, and he doesn't even look at the people that gave them to him, and he gets done, and he's like, well, I've seen these 50 things, but what about number 51 and 52 on my list, right? And you kind of want to throttle that kid, because you recognize they're being ungrateful. But... The solution is not to try to have a kid that comes out Christmas morning and looks at the gifts under the tree and says, meh, I don't, I don't really want to open those. I'm just, I'm just glad to be with you, Daddy. I mean, not that, not that anyone's children would ever actually say that, right? But, but you would actually be kind of hurt if that happened, right? You would, you, because, because you gave these kids this gift for their joy. What you want, right, is not that. What you want is children to open their gifts 
and delight in them and glorify, give thanks to, be grateful to you through delighting in them. To say, this is awesome. Thanks, Dad. And that is also how it works with God. What we are called to do is live each part of our ordinary lives with God in view. To thank him for every blessing of life, whether that blessing is a spiritual insight or a really good steak or a parking space, right? It's to, to come to him with every struggle, whether that is with the devil or whether that is with your boss, who aren't the same people necessarily. <laughs> and, and I know, right? <laughs> um. To serve him in prayer and evangelism and raising your kids and mowing your lawn. To seek his glory in all of those things. I was thinking about this old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, this week. You know, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, which is a great song. But it doesn't just have to be prayer through which we can glorify and enjoy God. You can enjoy him in the hour of prayer and the hour you sit down to your big Christmas feast tomorrow. Sweet slab of ham, sweet gravy too. The, the gingerbread gives praise to you, maybe. Although, I don't know that we're going to be singing that here. <laughs> the ordinariness of this story should remind us that God is pleased with our ordinary lives. And that means that we are called to give him glory in our ordinary lives. God's pleasure in our ordinary lives also points to something else. It teaches us that our ordinary lives belong to God. Our ordinary lives belong to God. This goes along with everything we've just said. That God is pleased with this world because he made it. And God made this world to be glorified in it. And our calling then is to glorify God because every part of this world he made, even our lives themselves, belong to him. This story that we read this morning about the birth of Jesus is about God coming into this world through Jesus. But God is not just coming as a cute baby, right? He is coming as this world's creator and as this world's king. For all the ordinariness of the story, for all the physicalness of Jesus, we cannot lose sight of the fact that it is God who we are meeting in this child. We mentioned this division that we can have between the physical and the spiritual. Here's the thing. I think people often talk about that division intending to make people more spiritual, all right? But often what I think it leads to is us being less Christian in our physical lives. If we feel like God doesn't care that much about them, we think that we can do what we want. I mean, I do this, right? I think to myself some version of, you know, God, I give you this time on Sunday morning, and I tithe, and I try not to do certain things I'm not supposed to do, and I even pray sometimes. That's your stuff, and the rest of this is mine. The rest of my time and money and choices, I'd prefer that you leave alone. But God isn't just the God of some spiritual parts of our lives. He is the God of all of it. He didn't, need to, he didn't need to come to this earth just to own the kind of like spiritual invisible stuff. He came to this earth to claim it in all of its ordinary normal physicality. All that is supernatural and all that is ordinary belongs to him. All that is spiritual and all that is physical. As Abraham Kuyper, this theologian once put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. 
Talking about God's pleasure in our ordinary lives does not release us from the call to turn them over to him. It requires it of us. That God wants to be involved in every part of our lives. He's the Lord of every part of them. And here's the thing. God does not claim that ownership because he wants to take that stuff away. Like we said, like we said, he created this stuff for our pleasure and his glory. God wants us to submit to his lordship in all of our lives because it is his intention to bless us, to do good for us, to offer us true joy and peace. So as we celebrate Christmas tonight and tomorrow, what I guess I want to wish you all is an ordinary Christmas. An ordinary Christmas. Go and enjoy it with all the familiar trappings and family traditions. Enjoy all of it. And as you do, reflect on the fact that that ordinariness is a reminder of where our Savior has come. Think about what it means. Feel his pleasure at the table and in the gifts. Give thanks to him for the blessings that he gives. And be reminded as you celebrate his birth that all of that celebration is ultimately his. That he has come into this world to make this world his once more. Give thanks to him and give him praise as we celebrate this ordinary and extraordinary holiday. Would you pray with me? Father, you are Lord of all of the great and mighty things and you are Lord of all of the small and ordinary. We give thanks for all of the rich gifts you give us here tonight in our homes together with our families. I pray that you would be with us and teach us and all of them to give you thanks and glory. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we move on from this time in God's Word and prepare for the table, we're going to